Today we've got the pleasure of having Miss Christina Cleveland here with us today. Christina is um, a transplant um, by choice uh, from California. By choice, she felt God calling her here to the lovely Twin Cities from California. Um, She is on staff. She's a faculty professor at St. Catherine University. Um, She is a social psychology uh, guru. (laughs) She uh, loves working with groups and uh, helping them process uh, various things in which would cause division. And um, she is currently uh, working on a book. And she is just um, a delight. So we hope that you will enjoy hearing what the Lord has laid on her heart to share with us today. Please help me in welcoming Miss Christina Cleveland. Good morning. All right. I'm going to start with a word of prayer. God, I thank you that you are the giver of good things, that all good things come from you. I thank you that you want to share your encouragement and your hope in your words with us today. We invite you, Lord, to come and do just that. I thank you that you are in front of us and behind us, beside us and inside of us. You are everywhere. Make us aware of your presence. May we be transformed by your presence. And help us to have fun, too. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I am honored to be here. I want to start by telling you a little bit about myself. Um, Most of you don't know me, sadly. But um, when I was, you know, people who do know me now tend to see me as a pretty outgoing, confident person. Um, That was not the case when I was younger. And actually, I was very timid. um, About as timid as someone might get. Um, For example... I wouldn't even call myself a wallflower because that would sort of imply that I actually went to parties and then hung out on the walls. No, that wasn't me. I was a home flower, right? I just kind of hung out with my parents, um, read a lot of books, sort of hidden books. Um, I remember one night, all of us, um, I I think I was a sophomore in high school maybe, and I was, for some reason or another, going somewhere. I had plans that night. This was so rare. I don't even remember what the plans were. But my brother and sister, who are normal, also had plans. And so we were all kind of going out the house around the same time. And so, you know, my sister walks out of the house. She's maybe in sixth grade at the time. My parents are like, you need to be back by 9 o'clock. She's kind of life of the party. And so she said, okay, I'll be back. And then my brother walked out of the house, and then my parents, he's a little bit older, so my parents said, you know, you need to be home by midnight. And he said, okay, great. So I was walking out the door, and I looked at my parents, and I said, what's my curfew? And they said, you? We're just happy you're leaving. Like, (laughs) do what you need to do. You know, stay out as long as you need to. Just come home when you can. And sure enough, I was the first person home out of the three of us, you know, and I said, hey, guys. And they're like, hey, Nina. My family calls me Nina. So they were like, welcome back. You know, come hang out with us again. Um, so, you know, another thing is I, was, uh, I played basketball when I was in high school. Actually, no. Okay. I didn't play basketball. I was on the basketball team, the JV basketball team. Okay. Um, I was a bench warmer. 
hardly played. I got the sort of garbage minutes at the end of the game when, you know, we were blowing them out or losing so badly that it didn't matter who was in there. That's when they put me in. I played about four minutes a game. And my coach, who was pretty intense, used to uh, keep track of all of the errors of commission that we made and the errors of omission that we made. So the errors of commission are like, you know, those are the really tenacious players who are like making things happen, taking risks, and they might make a mistake because they're kind of trying to do too much, right? And then the errors of omission players um, used to make a lot of, would make a lot of mistakes because, you know, they were timid, they weren't, they weren't trying to make things happen, they were playing it safe. And at the end of the year, it turns out I was leading the team in errors of omission, even though I was only averaging four minutes a game. So that just says a little bit about just like my timidity. My coach was like, you know, you look kind of athletic, like you might be athletic. I just would never know because you're so timid. Um, and so I was kind of like, all right, you know, like uh, this is sort of how I do my life. Um, another example, when I was a kid, I was about four years old, my parents noticed that I had really low self-esteem. They just, you know, I was just kind of someone who didn't, just would compare myself a lot, even as a, as a little guy. And... Um, so they, they said, okay, we're not going to do Barbies in this family, because my parents were literally afraid that I would like, negatively compare myself to Barbie as a four-year-old. Um, and so they were just like, we're just not going to do this. So that was sort of the trend in my life, and it, sort of, it went all the way up through 10th grade. And then finally, I think in God's mercy and wisdom and grace and just general awesomeness, he was just like, this has got to stop. This timidity, you know, this like, you are amazing, Christina. You have a lot to offer. The kingdom of God needs you to get out there and wreak some havoc and offer what you do have. Um, And so he did something really drastic to sort of help me learn this lesson. And what he did was he sent me to boarding school. So that's pretty drastic. I was living in California. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, when I was 15 years old, I got this opportunity to go to boarding school in New Hampshire, so 3,000 miles away. Um, I did not know what I was getting myself into. The entire process from like learning about the school, applying, and actually showing up there was about 10 to, 10 to 12 days. So if you know anything about the boarding school process, it's a lot like an application process. It's a lot like applying to college. You start in the fall, you kind of get your recommendations in, and then you go the next year. No, not for me. I was like, okay, I'm going. And I think really what drew me in was this school has a 10-story library. So I was like, whoa, sign me up. Like, that's exactly where I need to be. And so I showed up, and, I had, and it, it's really great that I didn't know what I was getting myself into because I get there, and I'm just wrong, right? So on so many levels. So one thing is I... Um, you know, a lot of my classmates were wealthy. I was kind of the poster child for financial aid. I had this great scholarship to go there. Um, so just, you know, my, my classmates were like, yeah, we're going to St. Bart's this weekend. I'm like, who's St. Bart's? Like, what's going on? You know, like, I had no idea just what was cool and what was not cool. And I didn't have any clothes for winter, you know, so this is a whole new experience for me. My parents said, we're going to get you a nice jacket. And so um, before I left, I, pick out, I picked out a jacket. And the problem was that I was really heavily influenced by, like, the NBA slash, like, hip-hop culture at the time. And so I picked out this, like, massive puffy jacket, right? And I was, it was just huge. And I, I looked like I was, like, the long-lost, like, posse member of, like, P. Diddy's posse or something. You know, like, I was just... I don't know what I was thinking. And I showed up and everyone's wearing these like charcoal gray, like heather, like pea coats. They're like perfectly tailored and everything. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I don't belong here. This is awkward. But the thing that was the hardest about transitioning to this school was that I came as a transfer. I, was, I was, came as a junior. That was my first year. So two years in a high school, three years in a high school. 
And one of the things that was interesting is the way of doing class, the way of learning was completely different. So I was used to like sort of the public school method where you basically, at least in my public school, um, you sat there, you didn't really contribute, didn't take any intellectual risks. I got great grades, but I was just sort of going through the motions to this school where um, we sat around this table called the Harkness table. And basically in this table, everyone had to, there was no, there were no lectures. The teacher never, um, really said much more than a few words. And the idea was that you had to do the reading, prepare for class, and then come ready to contribute, and not just contribute. So you see the pictures up here. Um, it looks like kind of cute and sweet and idyllic and like, you know, like a great place to learn. Um, don't be fooled. This place is terrifying. This table is terrifying because people come ready to fight to the death over what Faulkner meant when he said this or what Dante meant when he said that. And the whole point is that you have to come ready to contribute and ready to convince everyone else that you're right and they're wrong. Um, and it's, it's brutal. It's really brutal. And it's, it's, it's actually a great way to learn because it's sort of the Socratic method. Everyone's contributing. Um, there's, it's no surprise that so many of my classmates are now running corporate America because this is basically a boardroom table, right? You learn how to influence people. You learn how to convince people that you're right, even if you know you're not right. Um, you learn to be very persuasive. And so when, you, when you're at this table, there are two options, basically. You can either sit back and try to hide. It's difficult to hide at this table, but you can try, right, and just be sort of timid. That was the route that was, made the most sense to me. Or you could try to influence other people, come, be intellectually aggressive, take risks, present ideas that maybe are not conventional ideas and try to convince people that this is the right way to go. So that's basically what happened. The, the school had two categories of people, and these were the actual names. You were either a Harkness wussy, and that's somebody who was kind of timid around the table, or you were a Harkness warrior, and that's someone who was an influencer, you know, making, making a difference, being really persuasive around this table. And so, you know, my, my natural inclination was to take the Harkness Wussy route because that's sort of, that was like, you know, the trend in my life. I was on this like sort of, you know, path. But the problem is that at this particular school, your status as a Harkness warrior or a Harkness Wussy actually spread to outside the classroom. So Harkness Wussies got like zero respect on campus and Harkness warriors did. And so that, made, that gave me pause to think like, maybe I should try to be a warrior. But I was like, I don't know if I have what it takes to be a Harkness warrior. So one day I was having a conversation with our campus minister. It was sort of this, we had not a Christian school, so we had this sort of interfaith campus minister, this big black guy named Rev. And I said, Rev, I want to be an artist warrior, but I don't think I can. I don't know. I'm new to this whole situation. I don't feel very confident in my abilities. And he looked at me and he said, you got into this school too, right? And I said, yes. And he said, you belong here too then. This is, your, this is the new you. This is, this is the new reality. Don't wait until graduation to decide that you can make an impact at this school, that you can influence people at this school. Start now. And so that was really a turning point for me. And so I went back to the Harkness the room and I said, okay, I'm going to start taking risks. I'm going to start trying um, to offer my thoughts. I'm going to come prepared. I'm going to put myself out there. And it got easier and it got easier and it got easier. And then I tried doing this too in other parts of the, in my life, right? So I, was, I played basketball again. I'm not sure why. I kept doing this to myself, but I was back there on the basketball court. And I was like, you know, I'm going to be tenacious. I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to, I'm going to take some risks on the 
on the court. And I actually became one of those, you know, one of those players that was pretty tenacious. Still no talent to be seen. I have to be honest about that. Um, but I was kind of that tenacious player that one that like, my coach was always like, yeah, give him hell, Christina. You know what I mean? Like they count on me to do that. Just kind of wreak havoc. And so it's actually pretty funny because our um, high school basketball team would sometimes go into Boston to play that Harvard JV team. And one of my dad's good friends is a pastor in the Boston area. So he would come watch me play. And he was just like, man, Christina, you sure are tenacious. And he's like, if only you had your sister's talent, you'd be unstoppable. <laughs> and I was just like, thanks. Like, <laughs> I appreciate that. But at least I was kind of coming out of my shell, right? So the reason why I tell you this story is because um, I named this um, sermon, How Not to Be a Wuss. Um, and that's what I want to talk about today. Because here's the thing. The kingdom of God needs way more warriors and way less wussies. And unfortunately, I think a lot of us have a tendency to be a wussy, especially in the areas of life that are the toughest for us, where it's a little bit harder to trust in God. Um, So I pretty much want to... um, to talk about that. And what's really interesting is that I met, I met with Greg earlier this week, and he's like, oh, what are you going to talk about? And I said, oh, I think I want to talk about this identity in Christ business. And he was like, oh, that's great, because um, we just talked about um, the kingdom of God is not yet here and is, and is already sort of here. Um, and so you can talk about that tension. I said, that's great. I'd love to fit it within that. And it actually works really well, because last week Greg talked about this defiant flower, right? There, you know, the world is snowy. And even in the spring in Minnesota, and there's this flower that's willing to be hopeful and powerful and to, to do things differently than the rest of this world. And I was listening to um, that podcast on Friday as I was preparing this, and I was thinking, gosh, I want to be that flower. I want to be that defiant flower. I want to have, have hope that just doesn't make sense. I want to have power that just doesn't make sense and access to that. But do I have what it takes? And I think that that's one of the questions that a lot of people who are following Jesus ask. You know, you have this vision, you know, you know that the world is not the way it should be. And you kind of have this vague idea that, like, you can maybe do something about that. But then you ask yourself, and you're like, do I have what it takes to, to, to be that person? Do I have what it takes? So we might ask ourselves something like, do I have what it takes to keep hoping and hoping and hoping and hoping, even when hope seems to be painful at this point, right? Hope can be so painful. Do I have what it takes to pray for someone that they might receive healing? Do I have what it takes to go back to school so I can get my degree and I can have more kingdom influence? Do I have what it takes to stay in this marriage that is not really going super well right now? Do I have what it takes to be a single mom to keep this baby? Do I have what it takes to address the lust in my heart rather than just saying, oh, well, you know, lust, it's just going to be there until, you know, Jesus comes back? Do I have what it takes to forgive someone who's hurt me so badly that I don't, I've never been hurt that badly before? How can I even get past this? One question I was asking myself this week was, do I have what it takes to get up in front of Woodland Hills Church and speak even though I am blacker and younger and more female than the guy who's usually up here, right? This is the question that I was asking myself. Do I have what it takes? God, please help me. This is scary. I pity the person who gets the email from Greg Boyd that says, come speak at my church. Um, That's scary, right? So we ask ourselves these questions over and over and over again. And, you know, we can, we can, ask, we can um, look to the world for some answers. I, there are probably two possible answers you're going to get from the world. One is, no, you don't have what it takes. That's often, right? The other one might be, yeah, you have what it takes. Um, you can probably, you know, start that nonprofit because you've been to business school. 
And so, you know, you, so there's some sort of circumstantial, with, uh, you know, within yourself reason why you have what it takes. But that's not going to get you very far, and it's certainly not going to be very compelling when you run up against your first roadblock. And then you're like, ooh, business school didn't teach me about this. I don't know what to do. Um, so I want to present to you, sub- submit to you this idea that, yes, you absolutely do have what it takes. We do need kingdom warriors who believe that. And the reason why, it has nothing to do with bravery, has nothing to do with education, has nothing to do with status, resources, and has everything to do with identity. And that's the point that I want to make today. One point, it's all about identity. Identity is everything. Um, less is more. Actually, I don't believe that. I, I'm a professor. I believe that more is more. But for today, I'm going to try to do the less is more thing, and we're just going to focus on that. So I want to start by talking a little bit about um, two, two narratives in Scripture that sort of help flesh this out. Um, we're living in this, this, this sort of no man's land. The kingdom of God is here, but it's, it's also not yet here. We live in this tension. Um, the kingdom of God is breaking in, but we need to be part of the, the sort of the continuation of that breaking in so it's fully consummated. Um, so I want to start by talking about the Exodus story. It's a great example of it. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the Exodus story because I'm going to trust that you either go watch the movie on Netflix or read scripture because um, we just don't have enough time. But basically, here's the idea. The Israelites are slaves. They're not supposed to be slaves, but they are. And they've been doing this for up to 15 generations, long time, years of systematic oppression. God comes in and he says, yeah, you know what? This is not working for me. I know that these people are not slaves. And so he basically delivers them. That's the Exodus story. I want to point out two things that are happening in this story that I think are worth um, paying attention to. One, this Exodus story is about God starting a new kingdom, breaking into this world and saying the old is done. We're not doing that anymore. We're going to start a whole new kingdom. That's sort of the obvious narrative going on here. Something that's slightly less obvious, but I think is also incredibly important, is that not only is God starting a new kingdom, he's also saying, I'm going to transform your identities. I'm going to rescue your identities. So this, this idea of new kingdom, new kingdom people. If I'm going to start a new kingdom, I need to bring people with me who are going to have the mentality of this new kingdom, not this old mentality. So what he does is, even when he's talking to Pharaoh to convince him to let the people go, he, he, he makes reference to this identity transformation. He says in Exodus 4, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my people go that they may serve me, right? They're not slaves. I'm restoring their identity. They're my children. Um, later on, the prophet Hosea, hundreds of years later, refers to this, quoting God. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. So this idea that we're going to have this new transformation of identity that coincides with this new kingdom that is breaking in. What's really interesting about that is the, the Israelites sort of buy into that, and, they, and he delivers them, right? He backs them up. He says, you're with me now. All the resources, all of the power, all of the wisdom— all of the hope, everything that I have, I give to you because you're my kids now and we're, we're all in this together. Let's go. So now we find them. They're in the desert. There are probably two million people. No one knows for sure. Probably around two million um, Israelites looking for a place to live. And God says, I'm breaking in this new kingdom. I'm empowering you now to co-create this kingdom with me. This kingdom is sort of ready, but it's also not yet ready, right? On the one hand, I have this place picked out for you. They're like, you know, there's like milk and honey. They have big grapes there. Place of abundance. Great place to live. 
On the other hand, it's still run by sin and oppression. There are people there who are bad people, and they represent sin and oppression. And so we're living in this tension. I need you guys to come in and get rid of the people who are representing this sin and oppression. And this is where we find ourselves right now. Um, And so the Israelites sent out their 12 spies, and then the 12 spies come back, and this is what they have to say about this kingdom that they've gone out to look at. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them into the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Those are the the giants. Um, the, Am- the Amicalites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with them said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So here's what's interesting about this. Caleb and also Joshua, who's part of this narrative too, had an identity that was rooted in Christ, in God, right? They they were like, God said he was with us. God said he was going to give us all the resources because we're his kids. God said that... He's going to give us this new land. Let's do it. We can do this. And then the other 10 people had an identity that was rooted in their old slavery, their slavery past, right? And they were like, no, we can't do this. We're slaves. We want to be a part of this, but we're afraid because the narrative of our slavery is sort of overpowering us. And we're the kind of people who are afraid of giants. And so we're going to run. We're sorry, but we're going to run. And so having an identity in God leads it, manifests itself in bravery, and having identity and other things manifest itself in fear. Um, what's really interesting is this narrative parallels the narrative that we're in right now, the narrative that began with the resurrection. The resurrection is really just the real exodus, the new exodus, right? God is, again, breaking in this new kingdom. We celebrated it last week. I think it's something we need to celebrate every day, every week, because that power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us, and we can, we can do things with that to actually impact the kingdom. I love it. I love it. I love it. I get excited thinking about it every single time, right? But the thing is, is we're in this new kingdom, And we have that power. And God is saying the same things to us. You're my children. You're my children. Pay attention because the power that I have is for you too. You do not have to be afraid. You can go out. You can be tenacious. You can take risks. You can do an impact. You can do things for the kingdom that really no one else can do but you. And so what I think is really interesting is we're in this new new exodus. We're creating this new reality. And just like it was for the Israelites, The kingdom that God's created is sort of here, but it's also sort of not yet here, right? There's sin, there's oppression in our hearts and in the world that needs to be eradicated, that that needs the breaking in of the kingdom of God. And what's really interesting is in the same way that God was creating this new kingdom with the Israelites and also transforming their identities, he wants to transform our identities as we participate in the breaking in of his kingdom now. And so what's really interesting is that Paul only uses the word Abba twice in all of his epistles, 
And both times he uses it, he's referencing our identities as he's talking about this imminent breaking in of the kingdom. For Paul, too, there's, there's this, this sort of relationship between transformation of identity and the new kingdom. If I'm going to have a new kingdom, I need to have new kingdom people who get who they are in Christ. And so in Romans 8, he's talking about this imminent breaking in of the kingdom, and he, he, he uses this word Abba. And he says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and daughtership. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, we, now if we are God's children, sorry, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Indeed, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And then again in Galatians, he uses this word a second time, Abba. And he says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. So God is taking the Israelites out of slavery and making them co-heirs and children of his. And he's taking us out of slavery and making us co-heirs and children with him. Um, children of his, and we have access to all those resources. Now, I'm a social psychologist, yay, and one of the things I think a lot about is identity, especially because I study groups. I study group identity. I study group motivation. I study group performance. I'm a groups person. That's what I do, and so I want to talk a little bit about what happens when we are in a group and how that impacts and transforms our identity, because it might shed light on how it works with us and with God. Here's the thing about identity. We think it's super permanent. We think that it's stable. We think that it's hard to change. It's actually incredibly easy to change someone's identity. I do it all the time in my lab. If I need someone to um, have an individual identity, I can manipulate them to do that. And if I need them to have a group identity, I can manipulate them to do that. Um, Sometimes that power goes to my head because it's, it's great to be able to impact people in that way. What's really interesting about identity, though, is um, we, so, so we think it's stable. We think it's rooted. For example, um, we, might, we often say that you, know, you can only have one identity crisis per lifetime. Like if you have more than one, people start to think that you're just ridiculous, right? Um, another thing is we often say identity is rooted in things. Um, so that, that sort of implies that it's really stable. It's not at all. And so one of the things that happens when you join a group or when you get um, into a close relationship with someone, a lot of things about your self-concept change. Um, one of the things that we're going to talk about today is this um, process called depersonalization. Um, the term is a bit of a misnomer because it makes it seem like you become like less original or a little bit more generic. That's not really what's happening. What's happening is that in the context or in the process of becoming close to someone else, you, de- you develop this identity with them. And as a result of that, your self-concept expands. And you start to include other people, those, their, the, that other person, those other people, in addition to as well as their resources, their perspectives, their strengths, their weaknesses, those all get incorporated into your sense of self. So if someone says, do you have the resources to deal with this situation, you're not just thinking about your own personal resources, you're also thinking about all of the resources of those people who are closely connected to you. 
an example of this is um, when I, so I, was, I used to be a professor at Westmont. That's what, I, that's what I was doing. Westmont College is a Christian college in Santa Barbara. I was a faculty member there for two years before I came out here. And I, was, I had some advise, advisees, students that I needed to help um, plan their classes and that sort of stuff. I was meeting with one of my advisees, and she and I were talking about what she needed to take. And she, we had talked about her taking a physics class because she needed to take this physics class for her general education. And uh, she said, Dr. Cleveland, I can't, ta- I can't take this class. And I said, why not? She's like, I can't do physics. I just can't. I can't do it. And I said, um, I appreciate that, but um, unfortunately it's a requirement, so we're going to need to take physics at some point. And she's like, okay, well, can we just put it off until next semester? And so I thought, okay, maybe she just needs a little bit, of, um, a little bit more experience under her belt before she's willing to take on a very difficult class. So I said, okay, fine. We'll, we'll, re- we'll revisit this next semester. The, week, the next week, she comes back into my office, and she says, okay, I'm ready to take physics. I can sign up for it. And I said, what happened? She's like, well, I started dating this guy. <laughs> okay. If you haven't spent a lot of time with Christian college kids, um, one thing that you need to know about them is that they start dating someone, and then the next day, they're, like, planning their wedding, talking about baby names. Like, right, you start dating, and all of a sudden, it's, like, this super intimate relationship, and, like, you just know that you're going to be with that person for the rest of your life. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anything like it. So this girl had a boyfriend, happened to be a physics major, okay? So now she's incorporated him into her sense of self and all his resources, including his physics expertise. So in one week, she goes from a physics wussy to a physics warrior because she starts dating someone who's a physicist. And that's the way it works in close relationships. And that's the way it works with us and God, right? When he says, I'm in you and you're in me and we're all together and I have your resources, I'm going to give you resources and I'm going to give you access to my power, that's the way it works. And the reason why it works that way is because it's, we're, we're created in the image of God. That's how the Trinity works. Um, a lot of Trinitarian theologians, both, for example, he talks a lot about perichoresis and this idea that the members of the Trinity actually indwell each other. There's this mutual indwelling, this mutual inner penetration. And that's why it makes sense when Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus has incorporated the Father and, and the Spirit into his sense of self. And if they are not in there, if, if they were not incorporated, Jesus would cease to exist as we know him. That's how inter interrelated they are. It goes beyond just like, oh, I'm connected to this person. We collaborate. It's like, no, I am that person and that person is me. Every resource that that person has, every, every bit of power, every bit of wisdom, I have access to all of that. And that's the way that it works for us. We have access to that power too. Here's the thing. There are two reasons why I think it's really important for us to know this truth and to contend for our identities as kingdom people who are empowered and, and believe that we have access to this power. Two reasons. One is so we can actually collaborate with God in this kingdom and be bold and do things that we never would want, that would want to do on our own. We need to be a lot more tenacious when we're interacting with this world. Like Greg said last week, we're in this tension, right? The kingdom of God is, is here, but it's not yet here. For whatever reason, it doesn't always make sense to me, but God, who could totally have created this kingdom all by himself, has decided that we're going to be co-heirs and co-partners and co-creators. So he's given us this amazing gift. We can actually impact the kingdom. 
we can actually move the kingdom forward. Every single thing that we do is either going to move the kingdom forward or maybe even impede the kingdom because he's given us that power. Um, my old pastor always likes, used to like to say, you know, there's no such thing as a random act of kindness. It's everything is strategic. Everything is intentional. You're either moving the kingdom forward, even if it seems like no one even noticed that prayer, no one noticed that you gave to this. It's, it matters. It has eternal significance. And so the thing is, is we often, um, we're, we're so timid, right? We, we, we know, we're like, okay, God, like, I know there's something wrong with this world. And, I, you know, there's racism here, or um, there's sexism here, or someone, something needs to be done about the environment. But we often think, you know, we can't really do anything. We're not in power. Like, you know, I'm just resigned to just let it, like, let it happen. Um, and, and I'll be kind of a bystander. I'll maybe pray a little bit, sort of half-heartedly, kind of maybe believing that God might trend towards doing something. But, you know, it's just, it's super iffy. Um, and so what's really interesting is I have a friend from high school. He, um, he's kind of a blue blood. And he, he's not a Christian, but he's, he's very firmly rooted in the, the identity of his family, and for good reason. Um, he comes from a really old family, very influential. And you know what's interesting is he, he cares a lot about the environment. He spent a good amount of time um, in our, when we were in our 20s working on the Hill just as a lobbyist for the environment. And then he decided, you know, I need to get a job in the EPA. Like, I need, I need to get a job, like, working um, so I can have more influence, right, in this environmental protection agency. And so he applied for this job. He's certainly well-educated and talented, but, like, it's probably two or three notches above, like, what, he's, what he would normally be able to get. And we were talking. He's like, yeah, I'm going to apply for this job. And I was like, how, how, how are you confident enough to apply for this job? It's kind of out of your league, right? But he wants it because he wants to have influence. He has, he has good intentions. And I was like, and, and even if you did get the job, how would you... How did you even know, like, that you'd be able to handle it? And this was his response, and I kid you not, this is what he said. Well, my family founded, practically founded this country, so, like, I totally know what's best. Like, that was his response. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I can't decide, like, is that hot or is that arrogant? Like, I don't even know. <laughs> like, what is that? <laughs> so what's interesting is later on, I was talking to God about this, and I was kind of griping. I was kind of like, yeah, what is that? You know, it was kind of arrogant and a little bit cocky. And God was like, yeah, it's a little bit cocky. And he was like, why aren't you more like that? And I was like, hmm? <laughs> and he was just like, your family founded this universe. Like, you can do anything. You want, you, want to change the, you want to change the world? Go do that. You want to impact the kingdom? Go do that. Your family founded this universe. You want to start a nonprofit? Go do that. You see that there's, there's, there's pain out there? Go address it. Don't sit, don't sit around and just, like, think, oh, I don't really have the resource. I don't have the power. It's like, you have all the power in the world. And, he was, and I feel like he said to me, and I don't know, this could be wrong, but I feel like what God was saying to me was he was just like, you know what? I don't think it's a good idea to be super cocky, but I think it's okay to be a little bit cocky because you're connected to me, you know, and you can do whatever you want. So, so push the boundaries. Go, go a little bit further. Think, think about what you're comfortable doing and then take it up a notch and do it for me and do it for my kingdom and do it for my glory and I'll give you everything you need to do it, you know. And so I think we need to really grab hold of our identities. It's okay to be a little bit cocky in Christ, right, because um, he's given us this, these resources, Second thing, another reason why it's good to know that our identities are rooted in Christ. Because we live in this world, and it just, quite frankly, it sometimes sucks, right? I mean, you guys have spent the last, I don't know, couple months talking about this, right? Crap happens. Other things happen, too, right, that you probably can't say in church. And the thing is, is like, God never intended for us to have to deal with all of this without him. 
Remember, the breaking in of the kingdom of God is also tied to the transformation of our identities. He's like, yeah, we're going to start this new kingdom, and we're going to do this together. And it's going to be hard because there's still sin and oppression. There's still Canaanites out there. But I'm with you. You're my kid. And I think when we lose sight of the fact that God is with us, he is in us, then we start to lose heart. And the first thing that we do when we lose heart is we blame God, right? doesn't make any sense, but we do it anyway. This is exactly what the Israelites did. They, you know, and the, the narrative goes on to, after, you know, after they decide that the Canaanites are too big, too powerful, then they, they basically rebel against God. And they're like, why did, he, why did he even take us out of Egypt? We would have been better off back there. We tend to blame God. And I like the way John Eldridge talks about it. He says, we put God's heart on trial over and over and over again. And we're like, God, are you good? Are you trustworthy? I mean, I do the same thing myself, right? For the most part, I'm like tracking with God. I'm like, yeah, I'm a kingdom person. I've got this kingdom identity. Life is good. And then something bad happens, something tough. And rather than going to God and processing it with him and having him refresh my kingdom identity, I like go watch The Office or something, right? And then there's this little seed of doubt and mistrust that just kind of grows in my heart. And then eventually I'm at this point where I'm like, okay, God, like you have to uproot this because this is just, I'm like, this is ridiculous, right? Like I can't keep putting your heart on trial. So I kind of come in and say, give me like sort of like the kingdom identity reboot or like the refresh, you know, and remind me that I am in you. You are in me. I've got power. There is no pain. There is no sorrow. There is no hopelessness that can, that can steal my joy, steal my hope. It's just not possible when I know that I am connected to God. So that's the other reason why I think it's so crucial. Life is hard, but we were never intended to deal with life without him. We were never intended to live in this tension without him. And if we can stay connected, then we're going to be, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. So I want to just stop here, and I want to give us all the opportunity to just talk to God, to say, you know, first of all, what are, what are you maybe calling me to do? Like, we all have these yearnings in our heart, these desires to make, to be more significant, right, to make a difference in the world in some way. It can be big. It can be small. Like I mentioned, like, it could be, like, uprooting lust in your life. It could be uprooting anger in your life. Or it could be, uh, I need you to run for Congress, you know, and that's, that's what I have. Or I need you to move across the, the world because there's a, I want to use you in India, right? There's the, the range is huge. Um, but what is God calling you to do that's kind of scary? And ask yourself, do I have what it takes? And if you don't believe that you have what it takes, ask God to come in and transform that heart. Because he, we need people who are kingdom people who are ready to be part of this kingdom. Um, and God has that for us. He has that for us. And so um, someone from the worship team is going to come up and just play. You can take a few minutes. The, the prayer team is going to come up. If you want to get prayer on this or on anything else, please come up. Otherwise, you're free to go. Um, be blessed. Um, I'm just going to pray, and then we'll, we'll end it like that. God, you are so good, and you are so powerful, and I, I love that you are willing to share your power with us, and you're willing to share this gift of creation with us, and you're willing to share your heart with us. And I pray, Lord, that you come and you transform our identities again and again and again. Give us the desire to contend for these identities. And God, I pray that you speak to us. And I pray that you, you tell us to do things that scare the living daylights out of us so that we have to trust you 
we have to rely on you. We have to grow deeper and deeper and deeper in our kingdom identities and let go of all the other things that are hindrances. God, give us your hope. Give us your grace. Empower us so that we can worship you and glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.